Titus chapter 3, beginning at verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the water of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is sure. Uh, Our second reading this morning is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, uh, beginning at verse 9. Luke, chapter 18, beginning at verse 9. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector standing far off would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. On October the 31st in 1517, Martin Luther nailed a document to the door of the church in Wittenberg. It was a list of 95 theses, objections and challenges to the current theology of the church. And thus did the Reformation begin, and thus was the world changed. Of course, it was neither as simple nor actually as dramatic as that. To start with, um, nailing the thesis to the door was not the dramatic equivalent of throwing down a gauntlet. It was the equivalent of publishing a paper in a learned journal um, and putting out ideas for debate by fellow scholars. Um, The church door was the notice board of the university. And Luther was as surprised at first as anybody at the way in which his ideas were taken up and the huge and unexpected consequences of their availability. Printing press has a lot to do with the Reformation. But it suggests, correctly, the way in which it was all taken up, that this was not the beginning of the Reformation from nothing, as it were. It was one of a whole series and coming together of ideas and events and people which had been going on for some years and in some certain cases for some generations. And this action was part of a much larger whole. 
Luther himself was an academic. He was a friar, a priest who'd taken monastic vows but didn't live in seclusion. He served as a teacher of theology at the Wittenberg University. But even with all that said, there was something important that happened in this publication of ideas that has particularly to do with the actual theology and with its impact. Luther didn't take on, at this point, the whole of the church's theology in these theses, nor, in fact, in a lot of the writing that he did in the immediate aftermath. He was dealing with, he was attacking a very particular aspect of the church's teaching, and more particularly its practice, that of indulgences. Now, basically, an indulgence was something that could be bought with money and which remitted penance. Penance being what you had to do to deal with the result of your sin. Even if you understand that, and it is full of technical language, it is more complicated than that because it's part of a whole theology of atonement and salvation. Thinking behind it was based on the idea that the honor of God was damaged by the sin that people did, and the dishonor deserved punishment in order to bring things back into balance. But it was quite possible, instead of punishment, to pay a fine for it. And it was that blatant um, that you paid a fine to get out of the punishment. That's the thinking behind it. It's rooted in a lot of medieval thinking. So, for example, I mean, it, was, it was a general practice. If you, uh, if you damaged property, you could pay restitution to pay back uh, the damage that had been done. And that was extended. If you damaged livestock, you paid a slightly bigger fine. If you raped somebody's daughter, you paid a slightly bigger fine. If you ha harmed their son, you paid a slightly bigger fine. So the fines were all graded to do with where people or where things or people stood in the hierarchy. You with me so far? And theologically, that got transposed, had been transposed several centuries before into the idea of, stay with me, what they called a treasury of merits. That is, there were people whose goodness exceeded their sinfulness. Okay? So their extra goodness was, as it were, put in a bank and could be accessed by those who didn't have enough goodness and helped to set them free. That's how the treasury of merit works. That's what the intercession of saints was about. Had its roots in the understanding that Christ's death was sufficient answer for all our sins, therefore that it dealt with basic original sin, but there was the extra bits that you did, and the saints were those who were good enough to contribute to this, and it could be passed on. It, of course, it... This theology develops at the same time as a money and banking economy develops. This is not accidental, folks, okay? We use our cultural constructs to make our theology, and that's what was going on in this. And you could make, get access to this extra goodness by going on pilgrimage, by doing certain good deeds, such as giving alms to the poor, and this could win you an indulgence, that is, remission of the punishment for sin. It's an interaction an interaction with God, and it was managed by the church. They were the ones who, who understood it, who managed it, who explained it, and made it available. And the transaction was managed on people's behalf by the holy men who were empowered to, to do it. So an indulgence was a method the church used to transmit the goodness from the extra good person to the person who needed it, through the transaction of prayer or of alms. And eventually, alms to the poor came also to include gifts to the church, and when the church was in need of money, it became a way of raising money. And that was what was happening in Luther's generation. 
The Cathedral of St Peter in Rome was being rebuilt and money was needed to complete it and so the Pope declared an indulgence and that could be bought, literally, there are bits of paper, they're still around, from travelling salesmen. The money was raised was for good works, for the building of a great cathedral, and what was bought was the bit of paper, but what it represented was freedom from the penalties of sin, from the suffering of purgatory. Because people were good salesmen, one of the ways it was sold was not only to ask people to buy it on their own behalf, but to buy it on behalf of others, especially family members recently deceased. Every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs, was the slogan. And yes, it does rhyme in German too. So here is Luther, a serious theologian, confronting something that is deeply embedded in the church. Many others too had attacked this. But what made him different? Well, for that, we need a bit of his own story. He had become a monk He'd become a priest as well in order to honour a vow. He'd been caught in a storm. He was terrified. He made a vow to St. Anne, who was the patron saint of miners. He came from a mining family, that if she preserved him, he would become a monk. She did, he did. And taking religious... Well, he saved. He, he survived and he became a monk. Taking religious vows at this period was like baptism. It purged your soul of all sin. You then had to stay sinless. He did not find this very easy. Okay? Luther was a scrupulous soul. I think today he might have been diagnosed with depression or with some kind of obsessive compulsive disorder. Whatever the psychological reality of his, his self, it's clear that in the early years of his, uh, his monasticism, he did not find the peace and the sanctity that he believed he should be able to attain. He was deeply aware that he failed. He did not, for example, keep to all the patterns of prayer that he had vowed to because he ran out of time because of his heavy teaching schedule. Uh, one of the accounts that he gives is that he saved up all his prayer time and did it at the weekend. He had a prayer marathon over the weekend to try and deal with all that he hadn't done during the week, which meant he got no rest at the weekend, which, of course, if you know anything about a depressive cycle, did not help. And he became extremely anxious. He felt he wasn't believing enough. He felt he wasn't loving enough. He felt he was not perfect, and he should be. And he went and spoke to his superior about this. His superior was a wise man and said, concentrate on God. Don't think so much about yourself. Which is really very significant spiritual advice. And his superior also gave him particular things within scripture to read and work on so that he could teach, but also to give him a wider framework than his own experience and his own self-reflection. And it was in doing that he came to a breakthrough on a personal level that gave him some measure of peace. He, he said, he, when he talked about it later, he said he realized that um, rather than being a requirement, the righteousness of God, this was the phrase that terrified him, the righteousness of God. And he came to realize, particularly in studying Galatians and then Romans, that that phrase was not to do with God's judgment, God's righteousness used to judge sinful humans, but the gift that God gives in grace. God makes us righteous. And he worked that through, and he began to teach it, and this became the ground of his own faith and of his teaching. And here is the heart of his objection to indulgences. His understanding was that it was the grace of God that creates the possibility of relationship. That's what he calls righteousness. And that that's gift. It's not transaction. 
It's gift and not transaction. And that's what he comes down to. That the relationship with God is not one of transaction. It's one that God gives and that we receive as free gift and live it and live through it. And this was the explosive new teaching that he was preaching and which he brought to bear on his attack on indulgences and with which he undermined the transactional nature of indulgence. He was distressed that people were being charged for what he believed was free and that those who already did not have very much were having their resources depleted further to enrich the coffers of the builders of the cathedral and those who would benefit from it. He got very angry that German money was going to Italy. It's one of his, his big complaints. But of course, this wasn't new. It was what he'd been pointed towards by Staupe, his, his superior, when he was dis in despair about his own sin. Look at what God has done, not at yourself. And Staupe hadn't discovered it. In the 14th century, Lady Julian of Norwich, who was a creative, daring theologian, said, this was shown to me that in falling and rising again, we are always kept in that love. In our sin, God goes on loving us and holding us. And Julian wasn't new in saying it. In second century, Rome, Clement, who was one of the significant early teachers of the church, said, we too, being called by his will in Christ Jesus, are not justified by ourselves, nor by our wisdom or our understanding or our godliness or our works which we have wrought with holiness of heart, but by faith through which from the beginning God has justified all men, to whom be glory forever and ever. And Augustine wrote about grace and its place in changing hearts. And none of them were new in saying it. We can go on and on listing people who knew and preached and taught this. And they were not new in saying it, for it's there at the heart of Jesus' teaching. In that parable that we've heard, the tax collector says nothing except, this is who I am, my whole self. And he meets God. And that's grace. That's the explosive message that frees people and renews people and makes things possible that we thought were impossible. And you know, Jesus wasn't new in saying it. It's there in the teaching of the prophets. The whole story of Jonah preaching to Nineveh is about grace. The Psalms are full of affirmation of God's grace. The whole story of Israel is about the grace of God changing a situation. The message, the theology, the possibility is not something new and startling. It's as old as time. It's as deep as God. It is the way of God to us and for us and always has been. And it's written into the nature of being itself in all sorts of ways and places. We come across it. Grace is at the very root of our existing. We exist not because we did anything about it, but because of our parents. Our very existence is the result of somebody else's action. The deepest and most formative friendships and loves and encounters emerge not because of what we offer to or require from somebody else, but because in free give and take between us, simply because we are, we meet. And if those are our most deeply human and rewarding relationships, is it because they are images, they are mirrors, they are brief glimpses of the relationship that God offers us and creates with us, one that's based not on our capacity to be good or even to do good, not on what we achieve or fail to achieve, not even achieving repentance, but on the free and absolute grace of God which creates us and holds us. It's not about keeping the rules. 
It's not about being able to list all the good things we've done or even the wrong things we've avoided. It's not about being examined and passing the test. It's not about achieving some set level to be classed as good enough. It's not even about feeling guilty enough for when we know we failed and trying to make the feelings and reactions fit some theology or some teaching about how we should feel. All of our relationship with God and therefore all of who we are and how we are is grace. It comes from God. Not in an I am a worm and nothing worth kind of way, but in the way that all our deepest and most life-giving relationships do. And the issue is not does it become true at some point in history or somebody discovers it or talks about something that's never known before. The issue is we keep forgetting because it feels too good to be true. The Pharisee had forgotten it and Jesus shattered them when he preached it. The early church was in danger of forgetting it. And Anselm and Augustine and so many others had to make it clear again. People were in danger of losing sight of it in the 14th century. And Julian speaks of it. And in the 16th century, the church had got to the point of institutionalizing its forgetting. And so when Luther spoke of it, he did manage to break the consensus and challenge things. And what he did, what they all did, was challenge the transactional nature of the way we so often relate to God. Jesus' parable sums it up so clearly. The Pharisee has a most impressive list of what he's done and not done, of who he is and who he isn't. He's rightly proud of it. And he offers that to God as the basis of a relationship, as a way of interacting. It's a transaction, and it's a transaction which shuts other people out. I am not them, and they are not me and cannot do this. In Luther's time, the transaction shut out those who couldn't pay. If you couldn't afford the indulgence, you couldn't take part in the whole transaction that freed not just yourself, but your loved ones. You were excluded from the structure, the system that managed salvation and security. That insight is one of the reasons why it's helpful to grasp Luther in his context. The theological arguments can sound rather obscure and unimportant in our secular context, but actually there's something deeply relevant to us going on in what he's saying. He is preaching grace, the freedom to relate to God because God relates to us in love and forgiveness and blessing. The possibility of living with hope and security and freedom and joy and expectation, all the things that emerge when we're not controlled by the need to make ourselves good enough or safe enough or secure against uncontrollable forces. And his argument is that this is the gift that God gives to us. And it's not dependent on our ability to do what the structures, the human structures around us have put in place. In his situation, spending money on indulgences. In ours, well, what? What is it that we offer, that we believe we have to offer to God to be in God's good books? We don't have a list, most of us, like the Pharisee. We're too well trained in our own church tradition. But what do we trust in? What do we offer as a symbol of our righteousness? What do we do as duty in order to be good enough and to know we're on the inside? And what does it cost us? What does it cost others in anxiety, in exclusion, in despair? The grace of God is the gift of God to live the life we have been created for. 
not by our own efforts of goodness or conformity or significance or impact, but because God is living it through us. And it means letting go of our own need to be self-created or self-sufficient. And it also means letting go of the idea that this is purely personal. That our way of being with and before God is somehow nothing to do with other people. Just as the theology and its practice had social and economic consequences in Luther's time, one of, the, one of the reasons why Luther was so resisted by the powerful was that the offerings that were supposed to rebuild St. Peter's dried up. That was one of the impacts of his preaching. And just as it had an impact then, so such a position has economic and social and political and all the rest of it consequences in our time. What is it that we depend on to be okay, to sustain our lives and make us safe now and always? And if we are committed to living by grace, in the depth of that relationship that God creates and calls us to offer to one another, what happens? What does it say about, for example, paying taxes that are used to buy arms and sustain a culture of violence that is argued we need to stay safe for a given definition of safety? What does it say to us about being part of a society in which in order to make ourselves secure, we buy homes in ways that inflate prices so that having somewhere to live becomes an impossibility for many young people? What does this say to us about the creation of an economic system, which means that the number of food banks has risen exponentially in the last few years? What does this say to us about a system of the control of our borders that means we have the kind of impersonal and abusive detention centers that we've been learning about over the last few months. And we could go on. You can be part of our nation on the basis of what you bring. It's become transactional. The theology of grace, as Luther discovered and explained it, is not a simple personal I get, a, I get a free pass with God because God is nice to me thing. It's not even something complicated about whichever model of atonement we adopt in order to have a coherent theology. It's a whole way of being with implications for all that we are and do and the way we organize ourselves in community. How do we seek fundamentally ways of being that are centered not in transaction but in face-to-face -face encounter? The Pharisee turned up in the temple and listed all the good things he did and all the bad things he didn't. He piled up all the plus points he had, all the resources he could offer, and he laid them out for God's approval and acceptance. His whole approach is transactional, this for that. The tax collector came and said who he was. And he waited for a response that he couldn't create and he couldn't control. And he went home right with God. That is fully alive, fully real, a full person because he met God as a person and he discovered the capacity to live like that. And that's grace. Not hiding behind the transaction, not protecting ourselves by what we can offer or by what we do or by our riches, whatever we count them to be, not from God and not from each other. And the prophets offered this as an insight and it created a people that challenged the whole way their culture thought about the divine. 
And the early church explored it and it undermined the Roman Empire. And Luther preached it and it changed the world. And Jesus is still saying it. What will happen when we dare to believe that God accepts us because God is God, not because of who we are? What will happen if we trust that and then let it shape how we are and who we are towards each other, each other here and everybody else that we meet? Luther preached grace and it transformed the world and the church and it transformed the world just as those before and after him have done and so discovered. But preaching it's not enough. Even hearing it's not enough. Living it. Living in the love that God gives us. Living that love towards ourselves and each other. That is the kingdom's gift. That is the true reforming power of the good news of Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. God of grace, words that move us and transform us. grace made active and present in Jesus, in his healing and his teaching, his inviting and his challenging, in his dying, and in his being raised to life that cannot be ended. Grace that draws us into that very life. to live and love and be loved. And we bring you our thanks that you have given us these glimpses of grace in the people who love us, in the people who have just been there to meet us when we have needed them in those whose selfless giving of themselves professionally and personally have transformed our lives. And as we give thanks for all the ways in which grace has made us and shaped us and met us, so we offer ourselves to be your life of grace in the world. And we bring our prayers We pray for those caught in systems that have become utterly transactional. We pray for all those who have been enslaved and trafficked and are being used and abused. And for those who are doing it. We pray for those who have become so isolated and alienated from themselves that they have no other way of relating to people except transactionally. For those who are afraid of real encounter. For those who have been so damaged that they no longer know how to do it. We pray for those living within structures which are mediated through violence 
for those who live with the ongoing violence in so many of the areas of conflict in our world. We pray for the people of Israel, Palestine, the people of Nigeria, Southern Sudan, so many places where violence has become the way of relating. We pray for those places, those communities where anger and mistrust have become the way of relating. And we remember before you the people of Spain and Catalonia today. For those who within the nation of the United States find themselves trapped in that pattern. For those who within our own nation over issues that divide us find that anger and the othering and exclusion have become the experience of every day. We pray for ourselves as a church and churches and we ask your forgiveness for the ways in which we shut each other out. Where we use theology as violence. Or we refuse to allow grace to one another and meet and know that we are all held in your love and we try to keep each other apart. And we pray for our day-to-day -day encounters. We pray that you will give us grace to relate gracefully. And that you will renew within us that never failing stream of your grace so that the life that is in Christ will also be in us so that we can live what we preach and hear and believe. And we thank you that when we fail, as we do, still your love, your mercy, your forgiveness hold us. And that even in our falling, your perfect love never lets us go. We thank you. And we bring you our prayers in the name of our Saviour, Jesus Christ.